Hey, Emily. Boo. Yes, indeed. Boo, was... indeed. Uh, Sorry, I was just trying to be a Bruins fan. Yeah, you've got to we've got to record that to then use it uh, during games and on broadcasts. As I wrote about on Sunday, the NHL has asked a bunch of its fans in different markets that are participating in the restart to record chants and cheers. Uh, to do a thing that I find to be very either fun or awkward, which is to do the anticipation of a goal and then celebrate a goal. So here, let's try that together. Ready? Here you go. Let's let's in five, four, three, two, one. We'll 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 do the. Oh, there's gonna be a goal and then there's a goal. Here we go. Five, four, three, two, one. Uh... <gasps> shoot! 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 Yeah! Steve Merrifield. I think the players will feel more. Oh, oh, look at that. We got sound effects. <laughs> Steve Mayer can steal that for the broadcast. But as you mentioned in a roundabout way off the top of the show, uh, only the Boston Bruins fans, as far as I could tell, were asked to provide booing. Um, now, I'm not saying Bruins fans aren't qualified to boo. I think they're quite qualified to boo. I think Boston sports fans are very qualified to boo. But... I mean, the Flyers are in the playoffs. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, you have PhD holders in the dark arts of jeering in Philadelphia. And you're asking Boston Bruins fans to provide the soundtrack of booing? Come on. What are we doing? See, my take on that was it was each team sending it out to their fan base. Therefore, it was each team deciding what identity they want to shape. And therefore, the Bruins are the only self-aware ones because they're really leaning into their fan base. That mm-hmm. was my take. Now, you, you lean Rangers. We, we know this on the show. Um, it hasn't pr- pr- provided any friction between us with me being a Devils fan. A little, a little sad the Rangers in their uh, casting call for fan chants didn't include Potvin Sucks. Yes, 100%. It wouldn't feel like a Rangers game. But my other favorite part about it is, I bet if you ask each of those Rangers players that are 23 or under who the hell Dennis Potvin was and why does he suck, <laughs> I don't think any of them could answer properly. <laughs> this is true. And, 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 and as a Devils fan, I am quite happy that my team did not qualify for the playoffs because I don't even want to know what the reaction would be from Devils fans if the team asked for chance and, like, 50% of the stuff said at games wasn't asked for because it can't be shown on broadcast television <laughs> during the day. All right, coming up on the show, we got a great, good one. Speaking of Devils, former Devils coach, current National Predators coach John Hines will join us. Bob Stoffer, uh, Edmonton Oilers radio analyst, is going to join us to tell us why. Why Edmonton? Just why Edmonton, you know. Uh, plus, we're burying the lead. New CBA, return to play, all of it's done since the last podcast, woohoo, labor peace, what have you. All that and more coming up on this edition of ESPN on Ice. Let's start the show proper, shall we? From the ice to your earbuds, a podcast about hockey, featuring things to do with hockey. From your friends at ESPN, it's ESPN on Ice with Wachinski and Kaplan. It's ESPN on Ice, the podcast where ESPN talks about hockey. I'm Greg Wyshynski, senior NHL writer. I'm Emily Kaplan, national NHL reporter. And Greg, we've got labor peace. Labor peace. What does that mean to you? Oh, it means so much to me. Peace peace and beautifulness. It was like listening to Gary Bettman and Bill Daly and Don Fear, Matthew Schneider, 
on Saturday was like listening to four John Lennon singing around, strumming a, an acoustic guitar, singing Kumbaya. Um, the CPA's done. Return to Play is done. We've done a lot on Return to Play on this podcast, and I think you all kind of know what the deal is and, and where we stand on a lot of it. So let's dig into the CBA a little bit because um, that document came out. Uh, we hashed out a little bit of it, but now we've seen the full thing. Winners and Losers is the focus of my column this week. Uh, do check it out. But as far as what you've been able to glean from this document, Emily, what were some of the things that stood out for you? Well, first, I just want to talk about the genesis of it, because I think the big question people are asking around sports is, why are some leagues and unions getting along and figuring out a way to get this done, really looking at the NHL and NHLPA, because they not only have a restart, but a new CBA out of it? And why are some leagues so far apart from their players looking at you, baseball and probably football, and might not have a chance for any of this? And I think there's a couple reasons, but it's really important to point out that ever since they decided not to opt out of this current CBA in the fall, these two sides have been talking and they've been working on this agreement. And it's really from what I understand, almost like 50 or 70% done by the time we got to this pandemic. And then both sides were in such a dire situation financially. That is what gave them the super push. Um, but the really the biggest thing for me in this is the Olympics. And I will harp on this until the day I die, that it is miraculous the way the NHL had been talking the last couple of years about not sending players to the Olympics, that they could totally reverse course on the decision during the middle of a global pandemic and not just make it for one, but two in writing. And when you and I talked to Don Fair over the weekend and we asked, you know, how much this was a priority for the players and sticking point, I thought this detail was fascinating. He said, you know, it was so big that initially we only wanted a three-year extension. That was our yeah. proposal. But the reason it is four years or one of the reasons and probably a big one is so that we could put the 2026 games in writing and make sure we got that security. Yeah, we'll talk more Olympics later in the pod because we're going to go over some of the selections that we made for our Olympic team roster project that came out this week. But one thing to reiterate here, and I think it's something Bill Daly has mentioned, is that there is still another shoe that needs to drop for the Olympics. It's the big old IOC shoe. Um, mm -hmm. Not only in the IOC uh, giving the NHL what it's looking for insofar as marketing rights and so far as branding during the games to publicize the league when the players are playing, not only to loosen up the restrictions on video content. So if say, you know, Sidney Crosby scores another overtime goal to win gold for Canada, they can actually show the clip on the NHL network. Wouldn't that be fun? But the other thing too, is we don't even know what the hell the Olympics are going to be. I mean, it's a global pandemic and the schedules for all of these things are, are in flux. Ask the good people of Tokyo about that. So it's not only simply just kind of figuring out what the IOC's financial situation is and what concessions they're going to make after realizing, hey, you know, having the NHL players kind of makes people pay attention to your hockey tournament as opposed to last time. Uh, it's also kind of figuring out what the timeline is going to be and whether this thing's going to actually come off when it's scheduled to come off in 2022. Um, but yeah, the Olympic stuff is great. And I'm very excited for the prospect of seeing the Connor McDavid's and Austin Matthews's of the world being in the Olympics. One of the well, interesting that's, things. That's assuming yeah, that Connor McDavid makes the team because I don't <laughs> yes, know if you saw his right. quote. He's just really excited for the opportunity to compete. A plucky upstart for a spot. trying to make the yeah. team Canada roster. Um, I think the players did really well for themselves here. Um, they clearly didn't have the leverage that maybe people like me anticipated they might. 
I'll admit that when I wrote about the players and their leverage back in April, I didn't think of the fact that there were two years left in the current CBA and that, you know, hmm. if you went to the mattresses over the salary cap, the owners could really make life difficult for the next couple of years for these players until the new deal was open. But I still think they had a ton of leverage and, and certainly got a lot of what they were looking for. Um, the owners didn't touch signing bonuses. Contract variance uh, remains a thing, although the rules were tweaked a little bit on it. The one thing I that I love about the CBA from a player's perspective, I feel like it was written by spouses and partners. Because, <laughs> like, <laughs> the amount of stuff that came the way of family members in the CBA is kind of incredible. My favorite thing, without question, the house hunters provision, wherein the player and his spouse or partner get round-trip business class tickets and baggage paid for where they could go mm. to the place where they've been traded or, or where they've signed and uh, and then they, they go house hunting on the NHL's dime and then they get their business class one-way tickets paid for and baggage covered when they're going back out there to live, which apparently wasn't a thing in the previous CBA. Now, I don't know if the NHL covers all three trips to different houses under house hunter rules where they then select one of them at the end of the episode but uh, but clearly a pretty cool thing for spouses and partners and loved ones to uh, be able to uh, now fly uh, first class whatever the hell that means these days uh, to go down to uh, to to check out new houses but that was so that little, that provision yeah. i felt like was a direct response to the last 25% of this was done when everyone was stuck at home and these guys were on the phone and their <laughs> wives and kids are in the kitchen, you know, and they're having to be dads and husbands. And they're like, you know what would be nice? A little help with this next time around. Yeah. There's more tangible stuff in this document for spouses than there are for rookies, which I think is pretty amazing. <laughs> um, as as my, Although, my friend. Uh, oh, go ahead. Although there is some good news for guys with the entry-level contracts. I was surprised to see that go up, despite the fact that we are keeping the salary cap stagnant mm -hmm. and capping uh, escrow the next couple of years. That was a really interesting provision to me. Yeah, and the capping of escrow, look, they had to get this deal done in the new world we're living in. Um, you could feel in a lot of the things that were decided that it, they were decided for the short term to stabilize the sport and to to stabilize the league as it maneuvers its way through the next couple of years. And by the way, don't be surprised if you start to hear something that's being whispered behind the scenes right now, which is that the bold proclamations about an 82 game regular season next season are just for show. I mean, there's already discussions <laughs> behind the scenes about how it could be, you know, 50 games or something like that. I, I'm, I don't, I don't quite know why they've decided to be so, you know, peacocky about this 82 game season next year. Maybe it's for the sponsors or whoever. Maybe it's that, or maybe it's because of some language in their contract with TV that the only reason they can, you know, give back money is if there was, you know, it had to be forced to be canceled. They said, we did everything we could. We wanted to have yeah. 82 games. Pri privately, there, there's a lot more conversation about how it's going to be a truncated season next year, but that's another issue. Um, they they really did well to, to figure out how to... Look, it had to be collaborative. This dumb salary cap system that they should have never had, they should have gone with luxury tax, but whatever, it's the thing that we're dealing with. You know, if you tie it to revenue and there ain't no revenue, well, then the salary cap's going to drop like a stone. Don Fear, you know, has mentioned it could have been as low as $65 million for next season and maybe the following seasons. And they have to address the fact that the 
players have to make the owners whole when it comes to revenue in a 50-50 split. And escrow could have been as high as like 70% if there wasn't a season. So both sides had to work together to figure the, the, their, their way out of this mess. And um, there was a lot of, in talking to people both on and off the record about the CBA, there was a lot of it's the best they could come up with. And I, and I feel like it was. And I feel like there's a path to doing this where the next couple of years are going to be painful but not devastating. And it could be a situation where three or four years down the line, the players look at this document and they're like, what the hell are we thinking? Where they're, I mean, they're just not getting what they want out of it. But, and, and that I think speaks directly to the salary cap. The one thing I'll say about the salary cap and the players, I don't quite understand how you can delink it from revenue and then not have it at least inch up a little bit over the next couple of years. But that's neither here nor there. It's a buried issue now. Um, but I think in the short term, it clearly buoys the sport and, and allows us to continue to have NHL hockey in some way, shape, or form when the rest of the world is descending into a, a revenue abyss. Yeah, and one last thing just to round this out. Um, you know, you mentioned we saw those four guys, Matthew Schneider, Bill Daly, but Don Fair and Gary Bettman do this kind of victory lap of we got it done and we're all wearing the same blue button-down shirt on Zoom and we're all kind of in this together. Um, Don Fair, when we talked to him, told us, firstly, happy early birthday, Don Fair. His birthday is on July 18th, and he'll be 72 <laughs> at the time. And, we you know, we asked him questions that were forward-looking, and you asked him overtly, like, you think this is his last rodeo? And reading between the lines, it probably is. And then you've got Gary Bettman, who's just a few years younger. Uh, but, you know, we do wonder about his future in the league. Uh, he's 68 years old. His birthday was June 2nd. Happy belated to Gary. Um, and, and you know, maybe it's Bill Daly taking the reins next time. And I do feel like there was something very important that Gary Bettman did for his legacy in this thing. Um, and not the guy that locked the league out four times, only locked the league out three times. And he's not the guy that locked the league out four times and also prevented them from going to the Olympics. Um, he erases that small thing because let's face it, there's two things that hockey fans love. Um, they love watching their players in the NHL and they probably love them watching uh, in, in international competition too. So the fact that he is allowing both of those to happen, it's probably going to be kinder to him uh, when we write his obituaries and his career obituaries. Sorry, that was a little too there, morbid. There will be no <laughs> obituaries. Uh, I am fully, I'm fully prepared that Gary Bettman has made the owner so much money during his tenure that the, the 2048 uh, collective bargaining agreement, uh, it'll be his head in a jar that will be doing well, Can it. I add one last thing on this? One of my favorite parts of the narrative of this entire thing getting done was, okay, will the players vote for it? Yes or no? And like we were kind of figuring it out. And everyone's like, oh, if Gary approves it, the owners will absolutely vote for it. Yeah. They never go against Gary. <laughs> yeah. 79% of players, by the way, approving the CBA. That's That's higher than I thought. There you go. All right. Uh, let's uh, welcome our first guest. And now joining us on the line is the coach of the Nashville Predators. It's John Hines. And coach, we're on day three of training camp. What's it been like so far? Well, you know, it's been it's been exciting. I think, the you know, the energy, the energy around the building has been has been great with the players and staff. So, you know, I think the the energy level. I think in the excitement level of, you know, the start of something new again feels very similar to to a regular training camp. Uh, the differences are, you know, you're two hours before you come to the rink, we have, you know, self-test at home. And then when we come into the building, uh, everyone has to wear masks and you have to get tested and temperature checked. And uh, in our meeting rooms, you know, when we're having team meetings and things like that, we have to wear masks. So the, 
kind of the new normal of what's going on with the pandemic now is 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 um, part of it. The social distancing part of it has probably been the biggest change for us. Once you get on the ice and, and, and get practicing and getting with the guys and things like that, it feels probably the most normal um, that probably we've all felt where you're back just with hockey players and coaching and playing. So that part's been been fun and, and, and been refreshing. Uh, you obviously have been working hard over the last few months to kind of keep everybody on the same page, try to get everybody, you know, hopefully out there and keeping fit and all the whole thing. Uh, how do you, now that you get to see them back on the ice, how do you feel like that preparation paid off? Yeah, I feel, feel very good about it. It's, you know, we, we did a, uh, tried to do a very good job, just our co-coaching staff of staying communicated with the players. And, uh, you know, I had opportunities where, my family uh, moved to Nashville almost right after the pause happened. So uh, I was in Nashville. So I had the opportunity at, at, at times to be able to sit down with players, whether their house or my house or, uh, and really get to know them. And, and it, you didn't have a chance when you kind of get dropped in, in the middle of the season where you're playing every other day. And uh, so that was really good just to get some connections and understand them, them understand me, some of the expectations that they have. And I have, I, that was really beneficial. We had, a bunch of Zoom calls, you know, about our culture, return to play. Um, we had some guest speakers come in. So, we, you know, we really stayed engaged mentally that way, uh, which I think was, has been very beneficial. And, you know, now, now when it comes back, you can see that the, the energy level is high. The guys did a good job uh, with, with their fitness, and, and I think their phase two work was very good. You know, our, our execution, uh, the tempo of practice has been very good, and, and I think the guys' attention to detail is – is high, but I also think Greg, the reason for that too, is because it's, I think everyone here knows when, you know, you're coming in and then you're going right into some high stakes games and it's the most exciting time of the year. So it seems like there's a little bit different energy and buzz about our team right now internally. I got to ask you about your goalies because it's fascinating <laughs> to me of what you have to, firstly, you were hired in early January. So you only get like two months to really get to know this team and get the vibe of them. And then the season is paused and you said you kept up with the guys, but it's different. So you've got Pekka Rene, who's been the guy for so long. Um, and he's not many years removed from a Vesna or taking this team to the uh, Stanley Cup Finals. But then you've got Yusei Saros, who has really become a dependable guy for you guys lately. How do you approach this goalie battle? Do you feel like you're almost at an advantage because you don't know the team well and you can judge it a little more clinically? And, and, and where do you guys go forward? Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a great question. I think it's really two-sided in one sense. It's, it's, it's a good problem to have as a coach that you feel like you have, to, you have a very difficult decision to make on who's going to be the starter game one because that means you feel like you have two really good guys that you believe in and, and can help you win. So I say that's the positive side of it. Um, I, you know, the tough part of it is, it is, you know, eventually we're going to have to make a decision. You know, we're trying to make our camp as competitive as we can and evaluate as best we can. Uh, you know, we're going to really amp up some, some live scrimmage situations and game situations where I think you can use a little bit more of a eval situation sometimes than, than regular practicing. But it's all encompassing. And I think we're going to have to, you know, we're going to have to – you know, really, really talk through it, and it's going to be a difficult decision. But on the other side of it, I, I believe if we're going to be successful in the postseason, we're going to need both goaltenders in this format and in this situation. So um, I, I believe both guys will be ready, and I believe as a coach I'm, I'm going to have a decision to whichever way we go, we're, we're, we're going to have a guy that's going to give us a real good chance to win. 
do you think it's possible at this tournament to rely on a platoon situation, or do you think you need more of a traditional starter? Uh, it's it's a good question, though. I think you know, even if you take the play in right away, I think you're going to have a you're going to have a decision to make. I mean, you know, the guys are going to come from from practice. There's one exhibition game, so do you split them, or do you play them both, or or, or do you play one, right? So um, there's not a lot of game action. But then you're going into basically three games in four days with a back-to-back. So, you know, I think when you look at the amount of hockey being played or a five-game series, if it goes, let's say it goes five games, you're talking about ten days. So um, it's a good question. I don't think you have a, a straight answer to, to, to say either way. It seems as though you're going to need two guys to give you a chance to win. I saw some line combos from uh, practice the other day, and I saw that uh, the top line, I think, was skating back together, top line being the one that's been the top line for the last couple of years, uh, Ryan Johansson, Philip Forsberg, Victor Arvidsson. Is, is that, I know that they've not been together all year uh, in, in, in fits and starts because of injury, ineffectiveness, what have you, but is, is it your intention maybe to give that line a good run when we get back because you know if they're, if they're clicking how, how good they can be? Yes, exactly. You know, they were, they were, they hadn't been together, you know, for all the reasons that you mentioned. And, you know, during the uh, pause, be able to, you know, spend some time with, with, uh, with RV and Joe and, and, and Phil and get to know them better. And, you know, um, what makes them go, what makes them tick, who they like to play with, the chemistry that they have. And, you know, I, I think the three of them back here, healthy, refreshed, uh, excited to play, you know, they have strong chemistry and, and I really like, you know, Duchesne and Granlin have very good chemistry. Kyle Turris has played well, you know, really well before the pause. He was he was a he was a big factor for us. Um, you know, very smart player. I think he's, he's he that line has looked also like they've had some pretty good chemistry uh, together. So I like those those two groups. But you know, Johansson, um, Forsberg, and Arvidsson have been a have been an elite line, and I just think the excitement level coming back, the freshness, the health. Um, they're all great players, and, and um, hopefully they can get up, get up and run in here fast, and get the get the work ethic and the, and, and the chemistry back that makes them an elite line. I want to ask you about the bubble. Um, you know, you're <laughs> going to have your guys there, and for the first couple weeks, and hopefully if you advance, uh, their families won't be with them. And you know, we we've seen some of the parameters where guys can't go into each other's hotel rooms, and we know they're planning some excursions and food trucks and things like that, but. How much of an issue do you think it will be to keep the morale high? Because I feel like mental health is just such a huge aspect to this. It is. It's going to be a, it, it, it's going to be a, a huge aspect of it. And even, you know, I think we have a lot of guys on our team that they're, 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 they're husbands or they're, they're young fathers. Um, most of our guys are married. So it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a thing I think you can look at it two ways. You know, sometimes you come in and, and, it, and it can bring guys together and it bring, bring a team together where, you know, you're bonded together. You're doing different things, um, but I think it is important as 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 individuals, as a team, that we recognize, you know, what what players are going through, support them. But I also think we want to try to make it and, and and include the families as much as we can, whether that's family Zoom calls as a team or, you know, we're we we definitely understand that uh, you know it is a big sacrifice and it's it's a sacrifice to look for a chance to win the Stanley Cup. But, you know, they also are humans. And, and a big part of, you know, being a professional athlete or, or, or in this profession sometimes is your family can enjoy it. You know, they can come to playoff games. They, they're around the players, they're around the team. They're, the wives are together. 
know, that's a, that's a big part of the social aspect uh, that, that brings teams and, and groups together. So I think it's going to be a challenge for all of us to, to try to bring that as much as we can with our groups. All right, last one for me and about the bubble as well. So I was talking to Paige Nielsen. She's a, a soccer player uh, for the Washington Spirit, and uh, her league is, is playing right now. And I asked her about, you know, testing and protocols and things. And she said, the thing is, is that we as players know that if we want to keep playing, it's on us not to screw up. It's on us to not put ourselves in situations where we can get infected. It's on us to make sure we follow the protocols. And I imagine that's going to be the case with the NHL players, too. Don't go out of the bubble. Don't go to the club. Don't ruin this to everybody. So my question to you is, how much when you get to phase four and you're in the bubble, is it going to be the players, for lack of a better word, policing themselves? And how much of it's going to be John Hines as field trip chaperone looking over their shoulder, <laughs> making sure they're not getting in trouble? Yeah, that's a good That's a good. Uh... That's a good question. So that means, does that mean I'm out of the bubble if I'm if I'm policing to make sure that they're not? So, <laughs> you're in the bubble. Be, uh, you're all in the, bubble. in the bubble. You're you're the one. You're the one on the ski trip making sure nobody you know snuck a beer in to the hotel room. Oh, okay, the... I got gotcha, you. I got gotcha. you. No one snuck a good IPA in, right? So I have. Uh, <laughs> no, no. I think it's it's uh, it's a great question and it's a good point. I even I even think Greg now um, that we're not in the bubble. You know, our our players have really talked about. It. I think when you look you know, uh, across a lot of the articles and things that are written that, you know, players have been outspoken as far as it's on, it's on the players to police themselves. And even now we have our training camp days, but we're not in a bubble. So we're, you know, we're all relying on each other and, 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 you know, particularly the players just that they, they do have more downtime sometimes than staff or there may be young players that, Hey, maybe I just run out and grab something to eat at a restaurant instead of ordering in or whatnot. So I think they're really going through those protocols now because this is probably even more dangerous of a time where, you know, you're not, you're not in a bubble. You're not held as accountable as you might be in the bubble because we're on our own. So I think it's going to be a big factor um, for everyone to, to, to really try to police themselves. And I, I believe the NHL and, and, and the teams, we try to educate the players as best we can to make sure that they understand what they can and can't do. And um, I think, I don't think there'll be a lot of problems with the NHL players. I think the guys are in it and, and and once you get into that competitive situation, um, you know, I'm I'm sure guys have placed themselves the right way. Coach, we appreciate your time. Before you go, you know, you're packing in, in a couple of days and you're gonna be gone for a really long time in a hotel room in Edmonton. What's the one thing that you're making sure you put in your suitcase? Like is there a book you're looking forward to reading? Maybe a meditation C D you've been uh, using the last couple of weeks? You know what book I read, and, and, and I'm going to bring it again because I love it. It's one of the best books I've read in a long time. Was The Splendid and the Vile, the Winston Churchill book. Hmm. Hmm. I read yeah. it. I read it once. It was one of the best books I've read, and I read it kind of over the pause. And I think it's it's something I think I'd like to. You know, we'll have a little bit of downtime there, but something I think I'd like to. You know, when you read a really good book, sometimes you read it the second time, you get more out of it. Yeah. That's the one I'm going to try to tee up the second time. Love it. Good choice. All right, John. Best of luck to you and the Preds, and we'll talk to you down the line. All right, thanks. Great uh, great catching up with you guys. Take care. You got it. Take care. All right, moving on. As mentioned before, Emily and I collaborated on a really cool project. It is behind the ESPN Plus paywall. Just fair warning for all you people yelling at me. Um, but it's the Olympic roster project, and, and Emily and I uh, took a couple of different nations each 
she had the honor of doing Team USA. I took on the task of doing Team Canada and, uh, and went from there. What were some of the struggles that you had in particular with Team USA insofar as who to leave off and who to put on? Um, the biggest issue with Team USA, and it's a really exciting forward group, probably you know the most exciting we've seen in a while. Like You've got a top line of Kachuk, Matthews, Kane, Gaudreau, Eichel, Besser, Wheeler, Larkin, Connor. Um, but the center depth for the U.S., you don't realize it, but it's pretty bad. Like You've got Austin Matthews, Jack Eichel, and Dill Larkin probably as your one, two, three. And after that, you've got J.T. Miller. And like J.T. Miller is a good player. He's a fine player. But is that the really best fourth center that the U.S. can put out? Like Probably not. So I think that's their only weakness. There's a lot of forwards um, that are going to be fighting for spots. Like I look at guys like Alex Nebrinkit and Jake Gensel, who probably deserve a shot on this team. But like, how are you going to leave off a guy like Pacioretty? Or JVR is mm-hmm. going to be tough considering his you know previous U.S. experience. Yeah. Um, goalies were really easy. Hellebuck, Gibson, Bishop, like one, two, three. And then the defense is just so exciting. Like, I think the biggest strength for Team USA in this next Olympics is the fact that you'll have Zach Wierenski and Seth Jones, who are both going to be in their prime, 24 and 27 respectively, as a number one pairing defenseman in the NHL that can just shift over and be a number one pairing defenseman in the Olympic Games. Like, that's really cool. Yeah, and like like you said in the piece, like, you go beyond the top six that you have for the U.S., then you got, like, McAvoy, Adam Fox, Ryan McDonough, mm-hmm. Jacob Trupa. My God, like, the depth on defense for the U.S. Is, sta- is staggering when you contrast it with the depth on defense for Team Canada. Now, the top six for Team Canada defensively, from what I've been able to glean and project, Thomas Shabbat, Alex Petrangelo, Morgan Riley, Kale McCarr, Josh Morrissey, Dougie Hamilton – with, Col- with Colton Pareko and Drew Doughty in reserve. Now, you you might have some other guys in the mix, but those are the eight that I'm kind of focused on. And again, How old Brent Burns going to be? Yeah, well, that's the thing. Brent Burns, other other players like that, potentially could make the cut. But like, you contrast that group with what they had in 2014 in Sochi. Mm-hmm. Listen to this lineup: Drew Doughty, Shea Weber, <laughs> Peter Angelo. P.K. Subban, Mark Edward Vlasic, Duncan Keith, Jeez. and then you had Dan Hamhuis and Jay Bomeister. Like, it is all night those guys and are day. in their freaking primes too. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God, night and day between what Canada's rolling out there defensively this time. Now, granted, when you're rolling Connor McDavid, Sidney Crosby, John Tavares, Braden Point, potentially Mark Shifley up the gut, and then Ryan O'Reilly there too. You're, you, you know, you're doing all right for yourself. Let's, no one's crying for the for Team Canada here. And in, and in fact, you know, the idea that you could ice two Canadian Olympic teams and that that second team could probably beat everybody in the tournament except for the U.S. and Sweden is probably accurate. But this is not the world beater that we've seen in the past insofar as talent, especially on the blue line. And they're goalies. They're goalies, too. Like, I, I was trying to figure it out. Do you feel like you would you take the U.S. group of goalies with Hellebuck, who's probably winning the Vezina this year, Gibson and Bishop? Or would you take Carey Price, who I know he can beat the Penguins in a series all by himself, but, uh, you know, he's getting up there in age, plus Bennington and Carter Hart, who are younger Hart. and a bit more announced. Yeah, I don't know. That's I think it's 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 closer than it's been. I mean, you know, we're thinking back mm-hmm. in the day when Team Canada was rolling out Brodeur and Luongo as, like, their top two. <laughs> And it's stupid, right? So, But this group is a lot – I mean, look, we all knew that when the NHL returned to the Olympics, 
that the talent gap between the U.S. and Canada was going to be closed in a significant way just because the U.S. has not had a, a Jack Eichel or an Austin Matthews to roll out there in the past. Now, granted, Team Canada's got Connor McDavid and Sidney Crosby as their top two centers, so yeah, they're still real good. But overall, I'm really excited as an American who's waited his entire life to see Team USA's men's hockey team win gold. The women took care of business. The men... I'm tired of 1980, and I'm certainly tired of us losing to Canada. So maybe this time it's different. Unless, of course, the Swedes or the Finns have something to say about it. The Sweden team is pretty good. Yeah. The Sweden team is pretty good. What I've realized is, like, firstly, the top two center, for top three centers, Pedersen, Zibetajad, and then Backstrom, who will be up there in age but still quite serviceable, um, they've got all really good forwards. The thing that you realize with Sweden is they're not producing, like, the superstar forwards. Like, they're all guys that are dependable. Like, a Landis Gog, William Nylander always plays up in, like, international competition. But you don't have anyone that's, like, really going to feel like blow you away. Their defense, though, is freaking stacked. It was really <laughs> hard to make cuts on their defense. Yeah. Um, and then, and Ned is funny because, you know, the Rangers had to come up with a succession plan for Lundqvist. And really, Team Sweden does, too. Like, he's been their guy. He's a national hero for that 06 gold. Um, but I think it's going to be Robin Lanner and Jacob Markstrom battling it out for the number one spot. And I think that's like a really fun goalie battle. Yeah. And then this, the Finns are just tough to play against. I mean, they have high end talent with guys like Patrick Laine and Alexander Barkov, Sebastian Ajo, obviously. And your Miro. fourth He's... liner, Capo Caco. Yeah, I put him on the fourth line. You know, I, I, it was funny. I was talking to our friend Sammy the other day about Team Finland. And I'm like, what about mm -hmm. all these guys that are just on the way up? You're, you're, um, uh, you know, Jesse Pugliarvi's, your Eli Tolvanen's, like your Hendrik Bjorkstrom's. Like, are any of these guys going to make the team? And Sammy's like, no. And I'm like, you know what? I don't care. I'm putting Capococco on the fourth line. I feel like they're going to take at least one of these kids and put them on the team. Um, but he's going to, as, as your, as your, you know, Nick Lidstrom of Finland uh, holding the defense together. And then, oh my God, Tuka Rask, UC Soros. Uh, top two goalies. Like, Finland's going to be a tough out. I don't think they're necessarily on the level of Sweden, the U.S., or Canada, but they're a tough out. Um, what do you think of the Russians? So the issue with the Russians is, firstly, it's like a star-studded roster. Like, it's going to be so exciting. And, like, the way the Russians do business, um, you know, Alex Ovechkin obviously is going to be up there at age. He's making the team. Uh, Ilya Kovalchuk, I think, is going to be 38. He's making the team. Like, this is Russia. Who are we kidding? Um, their center depth is an issue, though, because you've got Malkin at the number one spot, and then you don't get Evgeny Kuznetsov because he's banned for four years, and the drop-off is so significant. Like, you've got Artem Anisimov, who's, like, a very good, he should be a fourth-line center and, and is, mm -hmm. you know, a serviceable NHL guy. Barbashev's young. Then you've got Vadim Shipayukov, who I'm so sorry I butchered your name, Vadim. Um, <laughs> but, like, is he really exciting? But if you think of these line combinations up top with, like, Pinarin and Kucherov on the wings, Tarasenko and Ovechkin on the wings, Kaprizov and Svechnikov, like, that's super exciting. And then yeah. the goalie competition for them. The guys you are cutting from goal in Russia would probably start for every other team. Like, mm. Andre Vasilevsky is getting the start. Shostyarkin's probably getting in. And then we pick Sorokin just because he's older and has more international experience than Ilya Samsonov. But Samsonov easily could, could be on this team. Uh, and you're cutting freaking Bobrovsky. Yeah, it's incredible. Russia's become a real goalie factory, and uh, it'll be fun to see. There you go. Olympics. Woohoo! Hope it happens. Uh, let's get to some reader mail. <laughs> uh, James, uh, uh, our, our known, our known, sure, wants to know, 
Who do you have as the first player to get caught breaking quarantine as he's picking up his Tim Hortons to go? Uh, of course, remember we remember the NBA had a situation where a player was uh, getting his takeout food, uh, accidentally crossed into the uh, demilitarized zone, uh, and uh, and then you know had to quarantine again. Who's going to be the first player to accidentally violate the bubble? I don't um, know who exactly, but I know who. It'll be a black ace. It'll be a guy so? on the extended roster. Yes, I do. I really do. Hmm. Oh, that's a tough one. I'm gonna go. Uh, I'm gonna go goalie. Let's say there's a, there's a goalie that accidentally, you know, Robin Lehner gets a an order from like uh, uh, you know, like Harvey Burger or something, and accidentally crosses over to a place he's not supposed to go. I'd be shocked. <laughs> uh, Keisha Hari, our good friend, wants to know in this weird playoff, which player are you most pulling for to win a cup? Well, you got to go, you know, the usual old guy route, typically. Marlowe. But, but I mean, yeah, you're Patrick Marlowe, for example. Um, I'm always quietly hoping that Ovechkin wins just because I love the anything that bolsters his resume as being one of the greatest players of all time makes me happy. And then all of a sudden, if he gets another cup, then, then it's one away from matching Sid, which is always kind of fun. And you know what? That, that was going to be my answer was Kovalchuk. Because he's on that group. And have you seen the social media content that they're putting no. out? It's Samsonov, of Net, uh, Kuznetsov, um, Ovi, Kovalchuk, and who's their fifth? Dmitry Orlov are yeah. like all hanging out of the Ovechkin like compound right now, or, like putting up photos saying Russian five, Russian five. <laughs> yeah. Even at the TikTok family challenge with Kuznetsov's kids. So I'm rooting Incredible. for them because imagine the, the post celebrations from them. Um, and then other than that, uh... That might be it. I mean, Taylor Hall would be fun. I mean, and if Taylor Hall wins, that means Phil gets another ring, which is always good. Uh, but uh, look, I'm rooting for anybody that can stay healthy for the entire tournament to win the cup, basically. <laughs> like, good luck to all of you. I hope you all win. Everybody gets a gold medal, just like at field day. Uh, Matthew Conti wants to know, what happens if an, if an entire or a large majority of a team tests positive during the finals? Uh, does the other team just get to wait two weeks to play them? I think if we get to the final conference and Stanley Cup, I I imagine then that's when we get into the postponement versus cancellation part of that last clause in the protocols in Phase Four. Like they, if everything goes sideways, they could just cancel the whole thing. But I feel like if it went sideways at that point, that close to it, maybe they postpone it. What do you think? I agree, but I also think if we get to that point and that's when it gets sideways, that is the biggest sign of failure from the NHL bubble, saying you could get this thing off the ground, but all of a sudden we've consolidated it in Edmonton and we only have four teams to take care of, and this is what blew it up. And you know who they're going to blame is the spouses and family members who are able to travel yeah, at that point. that's a good point. That's a good point. All right, let's uh, keep the bubble conversation going now with our next guest. Joining us on the line, Bob Stoffer. Edmonton Oilers radio analyst, host of Oilers Now on 630 Ched, one of my favorite call letters in North America. Uh, we wanted to have you on to talk about Edmonton as a hub city. Now, you're familiar with the pitch. Obviously, the COVID-19 infection numbers in Alberta and particularly in Edmonton have been pretty good throughout this entire pandemic. Beyond that, what do you think put Edmonton ahead of some place like, say, Vancouver when it came to it being a Canadian hub city? 
Well, I think in fairness, Greg, you know, Vancouver kind of opted out of the situation, right? Uh, I, that said, I do believe that there was some concern from the league perspective. Uh, the testing numbers in BC are very low. They've tested about 44,000 uh, tests per million. Ontario and Alberta are both over 120,000 tests per million, and they're climbing uh, with each and every day. They're, they're performing a lot of tests, and Given what the CDC has said about uh, COVID, their belief that there's nine to 11 times more cases actually than has been reported, to me, testing is important. So Vancouver and Edmonton, or Vancouver and uh, Edmonton and BC and Alberta in particular, BC and Alberta have uh, similar death rates, which are substantially lower than virtually every other uh, North American state or province. Um, Vancouver's had about 100 deaths since we've started. Edmonton's at 21 over the course of the last 18 weeks. Uh, Edmonton's got a 1.3 million person health zone. Uh, I'm not actually sure what Vancouver Coastals is, but to put things in perspective, Toronto has uh, over 1,000 deaths, and they have a 2.7 million person health zone. Uh, Clark County in Vegas, and Vegas was a front runner for a while, as we know. Yeah. Um, they've had over 5,000 positive cases in the last week. Edmonton's under 1,300 positive cases over now into 18 weeks. So the case rate is low here. I do think that Vancouver would have had a very compelling bid. I'm not naive to the belief that a lot of players probably would have have had a lot of time, but uh, their provincial government elected to move out of it. And the league wants to test, and they don't want to take away tests from the municipalities. In the cases of Edmonton and Toronto, those uh, provincial jurisdictions, uh, which are conservative governments but are – nowhere near as right as maybe the Republicans are in the U.S., those conservative governments uh, are leading the way in testing in those two provinces. So the the NHL and Gary Bettman and Bill Daly and those people will be happy with that as well because they know they won't be taking away tests from the average citizens in those respective jurisdictions. Interesting. Bob, I'm curious, what is the reaction of people in Edmonton to the NHL staging a hub there? Because on one hand, I feel like there I've seen a lot of sense of pride, right? Like here we are with this beautiful state-of-the-art arena and a good setup. We've won this hub bid because there's good excursions. We can say that we've done testing and, and we've controlled this virus um, way better than a lot of other areas. At the same time, though, it's a big international event with guys who have been all over the world in the last couple of months coming and descending upon your city. So like, is there a debate amongst people in town, or are people mostly welcoming? What's the vibe? Well, I mean, I work for the Oilers Entertainment Group, so my belief is, you know, I'd like people to, to, to support and endorse it. I will, uh, you know, just a little bit of political perspective. Edmonton is considerably more to the left than Calgary is historically, mm-hmm. if you take a look at provincial voting patterns and that sort of thing. The NDP uh, were the former leadership in, uh, in power in Alberta, and they're base is really in Edmonton. There's been some debate. Uh, there's a little bit of concern with, um, you know, people coming into, uh, and that's one of the things that worked in Edmonton's favor is there's not a lot of international flights anymore into Edmonton, and we're not close to the U.S. border. So that limited the, the initial amount of positive cases out of the gate. So that has got people a little bit concerned. We do not have a mandated uh, mask rule in uh, Edmonton yet. I would suggest to you about 60% of the people do use masks inside. And you both know that Edmonton's got very low population density compared to virtually any other NHL city, but it works to its advantage as well. People here love hockey. The comparable I'll give you is to, 
you know, I've been into, you know, Sanford uh, Stadium in Athens, Georgia to see the Bulldogs play, or, mm-hmm. you know, I've been to two of the last four NCAA national championship games. Hockey in Northern Alberta is like college football in the Southeast. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if you told uh, Edmontonians that everybody had to wear a mask to ensure that hockey was back 100%, that would get the 40% of the population that's not wearing them wearing them. That's the mistake that the governors in the U.S. made. Those southern states, they should have told them, no SEC football in the fall unless you wear a mask. Wouldn't have been a political uh, debate down in the states. They would have just done it because that's how much they love football. So they love it here for the most part. But there has been, in fairness, Emily, a little bit of discussion. Do you think that people are going to try to storm the bubble? I think Edmonton Edmonton fans know if you try to storm the bubble, they're not going to be playing hockey anymore. Uh, I don't think they're going to get much of a chance like Greg, to be honest with you. I think that the plan is that they're going to try to set up sort of, uh, you know, like like the Olympics, right? So yeah. that's kind of the scenario that they want. To be honest with you, they're already working on it right now. Like the building, is, the Rogers Place is shut down. The downtown community arena, which is adjacent to uh, Rogers Place, is open. But the NHL has already got some people in, and they're going to completely transform uh, the building and wipe out, as an example, vantage points for several of the suites uh, because nobody's allowed in. If I, I will tell you this, you know, and I host the show as you both know on a daily basis, I would if I, you know, ran a poll on Twitter or had the conversation on the air, I would guess that seventy to eighty percent of our suite holders and season ticket holders that are fans of the Oilers would be completely prepared to take a temperature test and go watch the game. They would love to come in and watch it. So in terms of storming the bubble to get access to the players or hanging out at the hotel, I, I just it's not going to happen because they're going to have it secured and locked down in sort of an Olympic Village style of way. Bob, I want to shift gears to the Oilers. You know, we're a couple of days into training camp, and all the reports I see is that this team looks even speedier than they have been because of some of the additions that Ken Holland made. And obviously it's the Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl show – what are the one thing, though, you feel like if this team doesn't make it far in this tournament, what is their flaw? What is preventing them from actually hoisting a cup? Well, I don't know if they're ready to hoist the cup yet, but for an extended run, you know, goaltending can undermine any team. What was Pat Burns' own line? Uh, goaltending 70% of hockey. And unless you don't have it, then it's 100% of hockey. So uh, they're going to they're gonna need Mike Smith and Enrico Koskinen. The way they were deployed all year, they don't have a number one goalie. They got a one and a, they got a one A, and uh, they got to find a way to. Uh, Dave Tippett's got a, you know, he's got to punch all the right buttons here. Now, saying that, he's done a pretty good job of that all season long. Special teams were fantastic, and yes, the team. And Greg, I know you alluded to this in the past, uh, especially once the Taylor Hall trade got made for Adam Larson. Like Pete Chiarelli wanted to build a big, heavy team. There were some extenuating circumstances to why that deal was made. Um, I think Taylor is a lot better guy than a lot of people realize out there in the hockey world. You know, that was a tough deal. But the one thing it did is it made the order slower. And uh, the game has clearly moved in a a certain way. And I'm telling you right now, this team doesn't even resemble. I I was thinking October 29th, we went into Detroit. And I watched Detroit skate before the Oilers. And I remember saying to one of our executives, we're too slow. Like, you're going to have to get some more quicker and faster bodies. And they recalled Yamamoto. He was a point-per-game guy. They tri- you know, Ennis came in. He's a quick little player. Athanasio can flat-out fly. And Nygaard is back as well from his injury. And they got a lot of guys that are support players that can really chase the pace. So goaltending, to me, could undermine them. 
Chicago's experience, you know, that's that's a team of veteran players that know how to win. It's a little bit concerning. But if you were watching the tempo and pace of the Oilers' practice over the last couple days, it's been impressive. Like, they've got a lot of guys up front. They're going to be challenged, able to challenge and turn defensemen and create some havoc. Last one for me, uh, Oilers aside, what do you think of this Western Conference draw? I mean, we, we, we talked to John Hines from the, from the Predators in the show today. They're, they have some, some upside to them. Uh, I think everybody's curious to see what Colorado looks like as a fully armed and operational battle station out there healthy. What is a, a team or two that you're interested in coming out of this Western Conference draw? Well, we might have been talking to some of the same people today because uh, Colorado is the team. I had a couple of people say, you guys in Colorado are the guys to watch and the teams huh. to watch. And So, I mean, I think Edmonton and Colorado are going to have real good teams for a while, Greg. And they're deeper uh, than, like, you know, the Oilers had that run in 16-17. They couldn't sustain it. They're poised differently now to be able to do it because they've got greater depth. Um, so I am definitely interested to see what Colorado's going to do. Calgary Winnipeg should be a really exciting series. The Canucks have got some good young players as well. It's going to be weird without the three uh, Cali teams in there. Like for me, that's those teams. You know, they played they played smash mouth football on the ice for a number of years. They just <laughs> used to pound the you know the Nugent Hopkins Hall Everly era Oilers, and it just seems weird that they're not there. But for me, definitely uh, Colorado, and then you know Vancouver, Calgary, and Winnipeg. I'll be intrigued to see how those teams perform. Awesome, Bob. Well, we appreciate your time. And just before you go, really quick, I think a lot of our listeners, if not most of all of them, are American and probably don't know much about Edmonton. Uh, what's the one stereotype you feel like people have about your city, and, and how do you buck it? Uh, the biggest stereotype is it's cold, and I started doing television production in the mid-'90s in Edmonton. I remember the visuals that they would always use would be from, like, January when it looked like Siberia. The, wet, the summers are quite temperate. It's fairly safe. It is traditionally Canadian in the sense that it's fairly open-minded politically, uh, but it's much more temperate than people realize in the summer. And the hope is that might play a factor in help Edmonton in long-term recruiting. So, yes, it's cold in the winter, sometimes for eight or nine days in a row, just because of where it's situated. It's, you know, it's a ways away from the mountains. Uh, but it's pretty nice here in the summer. That should help out the ice as well at Rogers Place. They are putting in new ice as we speak as well. Exciting times. Bob, thanks so much for joining us, man, and enlightening us, and we'll talk to you down the line. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me on. Take care, guys. All right, that was fun. Let's move on to our favorite segment of the week. Phil Kessel loves hot dogs. No, he does not love to eat hot dogs. Our weekly look at sad hyperbole and strange narratives of the hockey media. Good one, Randy. Good one. It's Phil Kessel loves hot dogs. The weekly segment where we look at uh, the uh, foibles and mistakes and you know all the hockey media stuff that we usually deal with. I'm, I'm gonna give a shout out to Doomsayers uh, on this week's edition of it. I mean, look, I think we should all be cynical about whether this thing is gonna come off or should come off. But you know, when the uh, return to play was happening, there were some people proclaiming that the opt-outs would be massive. Um. And they weren't. What was the final count? Like maybe less than a dozen I think people. It's seven. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not. I told you I'm not counting Andrew Shaw because his was a little bit different, and it was mm -hmm. doctors suggesting time off would be better for his concussions. Yeah. yeah. So there wasn't a massive amount of players opting out. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I'll leave to you. But it just didn't happen. And then 
I've seen, a, I mean, whenever we get news of positive tests in phase three, I feel like there's a lot of people that are just like, oh, shut it down, shut it down. This is what's expected. I mean, like, it's it was completely naive to think that you weren't going to get positive tests as these players come back from wherever they were hanging out to come back to a controlled environment. And, um, you know, I, I think I think Lars Eller said it best this week when he was talking um, to the Washington media. Like, this is the phase that's going to be hard to manage because you still have players that are going home and doing whatever, hanging out with friends that might have it, what have you. And then you go to the bubble. And that's really where we're going to figure out if this thing works or not. I, I think overreacting to phase three positive tests is, is, is sort of misguided when it's phase four that you should really over, overreact about because that's where the control starts to come in. That's when these guys are going to be cloistered off and that's where we're really going to find out if this thing can happen, not in phase three. All right, let's move on to some puck headlines. Dateline Austin Matthews. Speaking of COVID-19, Austin Matthews reveals he tested positive for COVID-19, but was asymptomatic. Uh, bad, bad form from Austin Matthews, by the way, to not credit the Toronto Sun with breaking the news of his own uh, um, infection. Don't you think? Yeah, he got feisty, though, man. It felt like he really threw some shade to our buddy, uh, the namesake of Phil Kessel of Hot Dogs. <laughs> well, you know, medical privacy and all that. Uh, Dateline NHL Awards. As we record the podcast this week, we've seen some of the awards come down the pike, um, including today's news that the Calder Trophy and Jack Adams Award finalists are... Quinn Hughes, Kale McCarr, and uh, Dominic Kubalik for the Calder, and John Tortorella, Bruce Cassidy, and Elaine Vigneault for the Jack Adams. Mike Sullivan, not a Jack Adams finalist. Kind of weird. He must not be that nice to those broadcasters. Doesn't give them the time of day after skates, something. Yeah, a little gruff or something. Because, I mean, honestly, the thing about it is that, like, I don't know who you kick out for that. Because I, th- yeah. I, I'm really happy, happy, Jesus, I'm really happy Cassidy made it. I'm really happy Cassidy made it because I feel like this award overlooks guys that coach really good teams a lot. Yeah. Um, and I think he's deserving of it. But, but I mean, you know, like, like Tortorella did a great job and Vigneault, you could point to and say there are tangible improvements that the Flyers made under his watch. I guess it might be Vigneault, the guy you kick out for Sullivan, but. I just, I don't know. Sullivan did a really good job this year. I just wish he could have gotten into the top three. Agree. Um, and for the Calder, you know, I know there's a big camp of people saying Adam Fox was robbed. And look, he probably was. But there's two guys, two guys who are going to win this. And the, it's either going to be Kale McCarr or Quinn Hughes. And Dominic Kubelik had 30 goals as a 24-year-old late bloomer playing on the Chicago Blackhawks' first line when he was a long-forgotten unsigned draft pick of the L.A. Kings. Like, you kind of got to give this kid credit uh, yeah. for doing a good job. And, and, and uh, you know what? He's not going to win it, but he deserves to be a finalist. I, uh, a lot of good rookies this year. He was not in my top three. I'm not surprised. I will, I will exclusively report here that my third guy was Mackenzie Blackwood, which, you know. Which is a fun. great choice. Well, not to the Adam Fox fans. It's not. They're going to catch hell for that probably. Uh, Dateline, but, you know, Ranger fans. Dateline, the Russians are coming. All right, you wrote about this this week. What do the sightings of Sorokin and Kaprasov mean going forward? 
It's huge. Like Kaprizov, if you think about it, was a draft pick in 2015, had three different general managers, Chuck Fletcher, Paul Fenton, and then Bill Guerin, come out to Russia to try to court this kid. And <laughs> it, was, it was harder than anybody thought. And, and you know, he, it was so clear when I went to Moscow in January when I talked to him, he wanted to come over, but he was scared that it was going to fall through and it was really fragile. So the fact that they all maximized this 53-hour window to sign these guys and in all of the cases burn a year of eligibility just to get them in the building and the fact that they're using a roster spot or hopefully to bring them to the bubble even though they can't play, like it just shows how important they are and, and what these franchises think of them. So it should be really exciting for wild Canadians and Islanders fans because Romanov's going the Canadians. Yeah, and Sorokin with, you know, Mitch Korn and uh, Barry Trotz. Woof. All right, watch them numbers next year. Finally, Dateline Palm Springs. Our 30-second reviews of the most charming rom-com that I've seen in a while. What would you think of Palm Springs? So sweet. Watch it on a Saturday morning. Could have done without some of the sci-fi flares, but a perfect 90-minute movie. Uh, it certainly does fall apart upon scrutiny, as my wife Ruby pointed out, uh, <laughs> as she was <laughs> lamenting some of the science fiction aspects of the film. But for those who don't know, it's a Groundhog Day uh, riff with Andy Samberg. Um, and uh, well, I always forget her name from How I Met Your Mother. The girl from How I Met Your Mother. <laughs> the the mother that that basically rendered the show Spoiler pointless alert. because we all really liked her. Uh, it's great. It's funny. Really clever. Good script, uh, really augmented by the Lonely Island Boys, and uh, it's a great sit. It's quick, and I think you'll really enjoy it. And it's also and got copious amounts Ooh. of J.K. Simmons. That's what I was going to say. He's so good. I knew it. I know so it. So good. Um, it's funny. It's on Hulu. Uh, if you have ESPN Plus, you can watch Hulu if you have the right deal. There, there's a plug. All right. That's uh, ESPN on Ice for this week. Thanks to John Hines. Thanks to Bob Stoffer. Thanks to all of you for supporting the show. And uh, listening to it when there weren't games, and now listening to it when there will be games. How exciting. Uh, I'm Greg Wyshynski. You can read my column, The Wishlist, every Thursday on ESPN. You can listen to my other podcast, Puck Soup, where I curse, uh, wherever podcasts are found. I'm Emily Kaplan. Bye. 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 This has been ESPN on Ice with Wyshynski and Kaplan. Subscribe to the show in the ESPN app or Apple Podcasts.